For me, newborn screening by genome sequencing is being invented right now. And it's only going to be invented once. And so for me to be part of such an exciting movement, which is really a worldwide phenomenon, is just one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my career. And if we do this right, we can help thousands of children worldwide before they get sick and help them lead really healthy lives and get to them before they become injured by their disease. And so for me, that really is one of the most exciting things I've done in my career and gives me great satisfaction to know that I might be helping some child in some country years from now because I helped to invent and develop these genome programs for newborn screening. In the United States, shortly after birth, Every newborn receives a series of screening tests to identify treatable diseases. Every September, we celebrate this amazing system of research, public health, and clinical care that saves the lives of babies every day with Newborn Screening Awareness Month. Neonatal screening often occurs around the world, and many countries are working on innovative approaches to use genomics to significantly expand or improve our ability to screen, diagnose, and treat hundreds, if not thousands of additional diseases. We are excited to feature one of these innovators on the Newborn Screening Spotlight, Dr. David Bick, who is the principal clinician for the Newborn Genome Program at Genomic England. Genomic England is undertaking an effort to include genomics in neonatal screening. Prior to his work in England, he was a chief medical officer and a faculty investigator at the Huston Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. He came to Huston Alpha from the Medical College of Wisconsin, where he was a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. At the Medical of Wisconsin, he was the director of the Clinical Sequencing Laboratory, director of the Advanced Genomic Laboratory at Trujan Hospital of Wisconsin, Medical Director of the Genetic Clinic at Trujan Hospital of Wisconsin, and the Chief of Division of Genetics in the Department of Pediatrics at Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Bick received his medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine in 1981 and completed his residency in pediatric at the Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut. At the Yale University School of Medicine, Dr. Bick completed a fellowship in human genetics and in pediatrics in 1986, followed by a postdoctoral research fellowship in human genetics in 1987. Dr. Bick is board certified in pediatric, clinical genetics, and clinical molecular genetics. He is a leader in the field of genomic medicine and has published numerous peer review articles, chapters, and reviews. Dr. Bick's laboratory at the Medical College Wisconsin and Children's Hospital Wisconsin were the first in the world to offer whole genome sequencing as a clinical test. He also developed the first genomic medicine clinic in the United States. Join us as we learn about the role of genomic sequencing of newborns. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. 
This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSDRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Dr. Bick, thank you for joining us for the Newborn Screening Spotlight podcast. We would love for our listeners to get to know you and the impact you've made on clinical genomic medicine and newborn screening research. This year marks the 200th birthday of Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics. His work remains and continues to guide our efforts in genomics. You are advancing the use of genetics and genomics. Please tell our audience how you got interested in genomics. Well, first, I I would like to thank you for inviting me to uh, be on your Spotlight podcast. This This is terrific. I got interested in genetics actually in college in a freshman biology course. And then when I went to medical school, I went ahead and trained in pediatrics, uh, which was the usual pathway for toward uh, clinical genetics. So I trained in the 1980s in clinical genetics and in molecular genetics. But when we think about genomics, it was really a case, actually a well-known case. And in fact, there was a book written about this child. His name was Nick Volker. And he had what appeared to be Crohn's disease, but he was very young. He was two years old and people were just absolutely mystified by what was going on. And he was actually quite sick. He spent large amounts of time in the hospital. He had multiple abdominal fistulas. There was just no idea of what was going on. And so at the time, his gastroenterologist got in touch with Howard Jacob uh, at the Medical College of Wisconsin and asked the question, is there anything from a genetics perspective? And no one had ever thought to use genomics as a way to diagnose children who had this severe of a problem. So after a good deal of work, they found a mistake in a gene called XIAP. And so it turned out that Nick didn't have Crohn's disease. He actually had an immune disorder. And so in 2010, the hematologist at the medical college went ahead and performed a bone marrow transplant and essentially cured Nick. 
And so he really represents the first case where genomics made a huge difference and in fact saved a child's life. And so for me, that was really the aha moment when I realized that genomics was really the path forward for genetics in general. And following that, we started a genomics program at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and we're actually the first to use whole genome sequencing in a clinical context. Thank you for sharing your journey, Dr. Bick. In the year 2022 is also being celebrated as the 60th year since we started screening for newborns in the US. In addition to being a researcher, you're also a pediatrician. What experiences caring for babies and children led you to your work in newborn screening research? Well, actually it was in Wisconsin. When I was there, I was at that time the chief of the genetics division in Wisconsin back uh, around the time that we made this diagnosis in Nick Volker. But in addition to getting involved in genomics at the time, I also helped to run the newborn screening program. It was David Dimmick and Bill Reed who were really running the program, but I helped to run it. And I had the opportunity to speak to moms and dads when there would be a positive newborn screen. I will like, I always like to point out that the newborn screening director for Wisconsin, May Baker, an incredibly talented uh, lab director, was there also at the time. And so it was a wonderful program. May and David and Bill were doing some amazing work. And it really was absolutely the one of the most fascinating and I think most helpful things that I got to do was to help children and find children with these rare diseases that could be identified by newborn screening and get them into treatment before they got sick. And so that really sparked my interest in newborn screening. Dr. Bick, you were a faculty in the Department of Pediatrics and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Medical College Wisconsin, where your laboratory was the first to offer whole genome sequencing as a clinical test. What advice can you share for others who are interested in proposing the implementation of genome sequencing in their hospital? What advice can you share for others who are interested in proposing the implementation of genome sequencing in their hospital? Yeah, whole genome sequencing really has turned out to be one of the most amazing tools. And it has some major advantages in certain clinical situations. Most notably, when the clinician suspects it's a genetic condition, but they're unsure about which diagnostic road to go down. Now, there's another technology, exome sequencing, where you're only examining about 1% of the genome. It looks at the coding parts of genes, which are the parts of genes that we know the most about. And yet, it doesn't have as good coverage of even those regions of the genome as whole genome sequencing. And there are certain kinds of DNA changes, certain kinds of variants, which exome can't approach. And so right from the beginning, we knew that whole genome sequencing really had some major advantages. One thing I would encourage laboratories to do and physicians to do who have an interest in sort of understanding how to manage whole genome sequencing in the laboratory, but also how to think about it in the clinic 
there is a website that I would turn people toward, which is called the Medical Genomics Initiative. This is a group of laboratories from around the country that have gotten together to write a series of papers that really explore and explain where to use where to use whole genome sequencing in the clinic and how to implement it in the laboratories. And so compared to when we first started and we're sort of feeling our way along, there's now a great deal of experience in terms of how to use this technology. Thank you, Dr. Pickin. Thanks for reminding us of your roots in the state of Wisconsin. Um, Dr. May Baker and myself got our start together at Boystown National Research Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, several years ago. And Dr. Baker has been a member of our steering committee and been involved in the network for years. So it's so great um, to hear about all the overlaps and colleagues um, in the state of Wisconsin. And now you've moved across the pond, as they say, um, from Wisconsin to the UK to take on a new role as a principal clinician for the Newborn Genomes Program at Genomics England. Can you tell our listeners more about this program? This is absolutely one of the most interesting programs that I've ever been involved in in my medical career. To explain it, I think I need to give a little bit of history. In England, the National Health Service is a, an organization which provides health care to everyone in the population. It's different than the way it's run in the United States, where there are many individual practitioners, there are many hospital systems and insurance companies. In 2000, this was about three years ago, Sally Davies, who was then the chief medical officer for England, brought together a group of individuals, including myself, to look at the question of whether whole genome sequencing could be used as an adjunct to the current newborn screening. And following that discussion, and there were experts really from around the world, it was thought that a pilot program might be a good idea. Then last year, there was a large public engagement, Genomics England, where I work, and other groups got together to, as I say, engage with the public. So hundreds of people from the public were, there was a discussion with hundreds of people in the public about you, the potential to use whole genome sequencing as an adjunct to newborn screening. And there was actually a good deal of enthusiasm by the public for a particular area. What came back was the public saying, we're very interested in this technology, but what we'd like you to look for, we'd like you to look for conditions that are treatable in childhood. And so last year, the government funded Genomics England to pursue this project. And I should just make uh, a quick explanation of the relationship of Genomics England. Genomics England is a company, but it's wholly owned by the National Health Service. And it was set up probably in 2012 or 2013, to deliver genomic information, both for rare disease and for cancer, and to really drive those technologies and move them deeply into the National Health Service, which it has done. So once this funding was established, the next step was to really consider what were going to be the aims of the program. Well, there's one obvious aim, which is let's choose 
genetic conditions that can be found through whole genome sequencing where we can find the diagnosis and where that diagnosis can lead immediately to a treatment and a treatment that needs to really be started in childhood. And it turns out that there are actually hundreds of such conditions. There's a website that I helped to develop with the folks, with one of the folks from Genome England. It's a www. Uh, dot rx-genes.com. If people want to look up a long list of treatable genetic conditions. So that's sort of the, the central aim is to look at those sorts of conditions. But in addition, we want to ask these families who will be part of this pilot program if they would be willing to share their genetic information and their child's information, anonymized, of course, to allow researchers to better identify new genetic conditions and also to drive research into treatment for treatments for conditions that we don't have treatments for currently. So the program is currently funded to screen 100,000 newborns, and we anticipate starting this screening next summer. We're going to approach families in the third trimester of pregnancy, and we hope to obtain, we would then obtain the sample right after birth. Now, I do want to point out that this program is, in fact, run by the National Health Service through Genomics England, and so there's a large steering group that's involved regularly in working out all of the details. One of the interesting parts, and this will interest your uh, screening colleagues, was what were the principles we were gonna use for choosing genes? Now, there are the well-known Wilson and Jungner criteria for screening, but in addition to that, we brought together a group of individuals. They were, these were folks from the National Health Service, from also physicians, nurse midwives, patients, to think about what are the principles that work in England for choosing these genes. And so there are four main principles around what characteristics a gene should have in order for it to get on the list. And the ex examples of, of these uh, principles are, are things such as it needs to be a Mendelian condition, it needs to be one that's treatable in early childhood, it's one that's uh, available for treatment and will be paid for by the NHS and some other issues. So with that in mind, we're starting actually now to use those principles to go through all of the genes uh, that could potentially be used for treatment. And one of the ways that we're pursuing this is not only to use the principles, but also to interact very closely with specialists around the country who have a great deal of knowledge about each of the individual genes. And so I've personally spoken to probably 200 or 250 specialists in every area of pediatrics around genes that make, might make sense to put on the list. And the other obvious thing is that we've been in touch with families to help us sort of to design the program. How is, what, what are families interested in and what information do they need to, to make a decision to join the program? Because, it, because again, this is a pilot program and we're trying to gather the information so that the NHS can make a decision about whether this is really something to 
pursue long-term. Another obvious area are the sort of the care pathways. So for each of the genes, we're, we're taking a lot of care to make sure that we understand how we would reach parents, who would call the parents, and what sort of things they would say to them. Obviously, because we're choosing genes where there's a treatment, the physicians are quite comfortable because for them, this is an opportunity for them to get to the child before they get sick. And so that's one of the other one of the obvious groups that we're reaching out to. The other obvious groups, as I mentioned, was uh, the families. Now, in addition to the care pathway, we're also very cognizant about the workforce. We know that if we screen 100,000 newborns, we're gonna get a certain number of positives. And so we wanna make sure that the physicians who would be making those calls are not going to be overwhelmed. We do estimate that probably one in 200 children have a treatable genetic condition. And since we're using genomics, we also know that we're not gonna capture all of them, but it, also we expect there to be some false positives. So we expect there may be 500 or 1,000 positives in that 100,000. And given the number of specialists across the entire country, that really won't have a huge impact on their day-to-day -day work. We're also very interested in the problem of sample type. Should we do cord blood? Should we do cheek swab? Should we just do the heel stick? One of the things to know about England is that here, the newborn screen, just like in the US and virtually every other country, is performed by doing a heel stick and obtaining blood on a blood spot card. That card is obtained in England around day five. And, but for our work, we would like to obtain the sample on day zero. So we were, we're actually doing some experiments this fall to look at the question of if you obtain cord blood, if you obtain a heel stick, if you obtain a cheek swab on day zero, can we use those samples effectively to sequence the entire genome? And then the last point I would just bring up about the program at this point is that we're taking a lot of care in thinking about how to evaluate the program. There's an economic analysis, obviously, to ask the question, if, if you do find diagnoses very early, can you show that there is a, that the government has been economically advantaged by finding these kids before they become ill? But equally important is the evaluation of, the, of how parents consider the program. Do they think that this is valuable? Are they, do they feel like they were helped and that they, do they understand um, what this program can and can't do? And then obviously there are the physicians. And so all of those elements of the evaluation are critical because we really do take the view that we don't know the answer. We think it might be a good idea, but until we work through these patients, we're really not going to know the answer. It sounds like a fascinating program and so many logistics to figure out as well as, you know, just the implications. So can you talk a little bit about the long-term implications of storing and using the genome over a lifetime, or is that sort of out of the scope of this project? That is a fabulous question. And I actually meant to, to touch on that. 
So I had talked about two of the principles, two of the objectives. One is to find children who have treatable conditions. A second objective is to look to see if we can do research with that information to improve healthcare. But a third is a very important one that you bring up, which is the potential use of a genome across a child and an adult's lifespan. And this is a bit more speculative because you sort of need to think about some of the long-term implications. Some of the questions that arise are, how can we store the data safely? And what are the implications for, say, health insurance or disability insurance or life insurance? So those are questions that obviously the public and ourselves are very concerned about. But on the other hand, let's think about a child who was screen negative, but then at age two or three or four, they develop a phenotype where the physician thinks, oh, I think this might be genetic we could then immediately go back to that genome if it was stored and look for a genetic condition. Another important point that we make to families is that this is a screening test. We know that even among the disorders that we're going to look for, we're gonna miss some of those. And so those are very important considerations when we think about some of the longer term use of the genome. You could also even imagine using the genome later on where you might have a child who at 10 or 12 develops ADHD. And now the doctor is saying, well, gee, I'd like to start the child on uh, a medication for ADHD, Ritalin or so forth. Are there DNA changes which might tell you which category of this, of drug might be most effective for those kids. And so this is absolutely one of the aims is to start to explore this possibility of the lifetime use. One of the points I that's made repeatedly is what is the cost of storing a genome? Wouldn't you might be actually better off to simply resequence than to store. So that that's another area that's being explored. Thank you so much for sharing about the New, the Newborn Genome Program at Genome in England. Maybe for our listener, could you elaborate on what are the differences between sequencing healthy versus ill babies? And if so, how does the guide interpretation of changes found in the DNA sequence? This, this is really a, an essential question. One of the pieces to understand is that rapid genome sequencing, which can now be done in hours or even, well, usually a few days, but can actually be done in hours, is a very important tool that's being used in a number of countries worldwide to investigate children very early on who become ill in the first few days of life. And so whole genome sequencing turns out to be an excellent technology for taking care of those children. When you go to look at a genome in a child who's ill, you're going to examine that genome in light of the child's phenotype. Let's say they had a high ammonia level. You would look for genes that cause hyperammonemia. If you had a child with a seizure disorder as a newborn, there's a variety of genes that you would look at 
that are connected to early onset seizures. Also, the sorts of DNA changes that you would flag in a child who has a medical condition are different than in a child who has no medical condition. So for example, if there's a DNA change which has been well known in the literature to cause disease, whether the child is ill or not, that's something that a laboratory would feel comfortable reporting. In the situation, however, where you have a variant, where you're not totally sure that it can cause disease, you, you're suspicious, but you're not sure, these variants, they're often called a variant of uncertain significance. The probability is that in a child who's ill, where that variant is in a gene that's connected to that child's illness, the doctors will wanna know about that variant because it could send them down the right road to choosing a therapy for that child. Again, it's because you have a child who's ill and now you found a DNA change in a gene that could be connected to that illness, say a seizure disorder. A healthy child's a very different matter. Here, if you find one of these variants that you're unsure of, in a healthy child, that variant is more likely to be not relevant and in fact benign, not disease causing. And so you wouldn't wanna flag up those variants in healthy children because you're gonna get lots of false positives. And so the concept, if people wanna dive into this problem more de deeply, is a concept called positive predictive value. And this concept is very, very driven by how common the disease is, and for genetic conditions, they're very rare, the sensitivity of your test and the specificity of your test. But the short answer is that you need to really explore variants with high positive predictive value in the healthy newborn, whereas a child who's ill, that variant doesn't have to be as specifically pathogenic in order for it to be helpful to the physician. Thank you so much. I think that points to sort of the interplay between the phenotype and the genotype. And so it'll be really interesting to see what you find um, during this important project. Dr. Bick, in your recent publication titled Newborn Screening by Genomic Sequencing Opportunities and Challenges, you describe the need for standardization of data formats and analytical approaches, both within and even between health systems, to really support newborn screening by genome sequencing. There are differences, as you well know, between the UK and the US healthcare delivery system. How do you envision this process of standardization helping to advance your project in the UK? And do you have any advice for us in the US with our various healthcare delivery systems and health insurance plans? How will we someday be able to adopt a similar approach? Yeah, though this that's a great question. I think the first the first thing you have to appreciate is that a genome requires a fair bit of storage capacity for, for, a, for a genome. And so due to this size, 
there are a lot of questions, as I had alluded to before, about whether you should store the genome after you've sequenced it, or should you just run the genome, find out what you can from it in that newborn period, and then if you need to approach that child or adult again, you just resequence them. In the UK, we, we have the ability to sort of centralize this problem because there's a single payer across the entire country. They can choose a single genetic platform. In this case, we're, we're using NovaSeqs, which is a short read sequencing platform. Though I anticipate in the not too distant future, long read sequencing will play a major role we're able to centralize the sequencing and centralize the analysis process. So we can work out uh, data formats and analytic approaches that would really go across the entire country. In the US, that's more difficult, though I will say that there are at least five or six programs in the US that are starting to do newborn screening by genomic sequencing. And so there's actually going to be a meeting in the fall that involves a number of those programs from the U.S. and a number from uh, other countries to start thinking about these problems of how to standardize data formats, but also to start to think about these ana different analytic approaches. So I think the important part here would be that it's okay right now that multiple different approaches are actually being taken even within the United States and in countries around the world because no one quite knows what's the best approach. I think the key will be for all of these groups to talk to each other on a regular basis, which we're actually doing right now. I've been in contact with programs around the world. I will say also that there are groups in China that have undertaken this there's a group in Qatar. There are a couple of more groups in Europe beside ours. There are four groups in Australia. And so there's quite a bit of interest worldwide for genomic screening uh, by <clears throat> of newborns. But again, each of these programs is taking a somewhat different approach, which is entirely appropriate in an area as new as this. The other point I would just make is that uh, you, you sort of need to sort of think about what might you store. And in the beginning, you might want to think about just storing the variants so that you would have an opportunity to reevaluate. And that might be a smaller data storage footprint. Another area where, where I think a lot of progress could be made in this area of newborn screening by genomic sequencing would be in this concept of case definition. So what is a case? Well, when you sequence a child's newborn, a child's genome, and you found in say the gene for cystic fibrosis, CFTR, let's say you found two well-known pathogenic variants, you would be very suspicious that the child has the disease. You might define that as screen positive. But then separately, you're going to want to do additional testing 
so that a physician could say, yes, this child is actually affected with cystic fibrosis. And so you'd wanna work with groups around the world to create these case definitions of what is screen positive and what is, quote, an affected child at the end of the screening process. So that's, that's an area where there's a lot of opportunity for uh, groups coming together to create this standardization uh, across, around the world. Yeah, that's really groundbreaking. Um, as you know, um, in the United States, we've got the National Institutes of Health and they've got a robust system of um, data sharing and even enabling um, the sharing of genomic and phenotypic data in the database of genotypes and phenotypes or dbGaP. Um, is there a similar um, sort of mechanism for data sharing and secondary use of data in the UK, or is that somewhere um, that you've sort of thought about, you know, we're going to do all these newborn genomes, let's make them available for later secondary use or data mining? Yes, that's absolutely one of the core missions of Genomics England, is not only to provide clinicians and families with information about rare disease and cancer, which they can use clinically today, it's also essential to our mission that we make the data that we have available to researchers really worldwide. And so that's another incredibly important part of this process. And that's why not only is there that goal of finding children who have something we can treat today, but there's also this goal of using this information for research to improve the outcome of children in the future and to, and to have more drugs developed. Dr. Pick, thank you so much for the impact you've made in genomic medicine and advancing newborn screening research. We'll love to know, like, are you involved in training the next generation of pediatricians and clinicians? And what do you tell them about newborn screening research? Right. So we actually have genetic trainees uh, from the UK who are now involved in the newborn program here. What I would say to genetics trainees and, and other individuals who are just coming up in medicine is that newborn screening is really wide open because this movement toward whole genome sequencing is going to require lots of people and lots of time to sort out. If you think about the history of newborn screening, when uh, the Guthrie blood spot card was first developed and the Guthrie test was developed many, many years ago, think about the history of newborn screening. It has continued to develop and continued to adopt new technologies. And so in you know, not too long ago, newborn screening ado adopted tandem mass spec and that created a huge jump in the number of conditions that could be approached. Whole genome sequencing will allow us to sort of do that again so that we can probably screen for, hunt. well, we can definitely screen for hundreds of conditions. We anticipate in our program, 200, 300, perhaps 400 conditions will be on the list that we're gonna screen for. One of the challenges though, is to really think about sensitivity and specificity. So 
in most newborn screening programs where you're looking for a particular analyte, a particular chemical in the baby's blood, a great deal of effort is made to not miss any cases. And so the sensitivity of the test is very, very high, but in so doing, you get some false positives. So the specificity is not necessarily perfect. That's a great outcome because then you're not gonna miss any children. With whole genome sequencing, we know that because we haven't identified every mutation, every pathogenic variant for every gene, we know we're going to miss some of the children that we're screening where we are screening. And so our sensitivity will not be as high as the current newborn screening. Now, for some disorders such as spinal muscular atrophy, which is a a neurodegenerative condition where children present in the first months of life with severe hypotonia, they're very, very floppy. That disorder, there is one or two uh, variants, really deletions, if you will, of the gene, which cause almost all of the all of the conditions. Almost all the kids who have the condition have that DNA change. And so the sensitivity to look for that disorder is going to be very, very high. And the specificity as well, because a DNA test gives you a very clear yes, no, in terms of whether a DNA change is there or not. But for rarer conditions, imagine uh, an immune condition that causes, say, severe combined immune deficiency, and there are probably 30 or 40 different genes. Many of those genes that cause severe combined immune deficiency, those cases are individually quite rare. And so for any one of those genes, for some of those genes, there might only be 10 or 20 children in the world who've been identified, which means that we have definitely not identified all of the possible DNA changes that can cause disease for that gene. And so our sensitivity is going to suffer, but our specificity will be extremely high because we're going to choose DNA changes that we know are pathogenic or likely pathogenic. Those are very specific designations, very specific terms when you're uh, doing a readout of a genome. Thank you, Dr. Beck. Um, Dr. Chan and I join you today from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics with its home office in Bethesda, Maryland. ACMG for the last 14 years has operated the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, which hosts this Spotlight podcast. So MBSTRN is a program of the Hunter Kelly Newborn Screening Research program at the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, one of the NIH institutes. So in thinking about the roles that ACMG and MBSTRN could play in advancing, you know, what you're trying to do with Genomics England, whether it's secondary findings for clinical exome or genome sequencing that ACMG produces, or the work that MBSTRN does in helping to advance rare disease research on an international stage where we're working to help understand the use of genomics to screen, diagnose, treat, and manage disease. 
What role do you think ACMG and MBSTRM could play in your efforts? Right. They are both extremely well-known and also have a major role in this effort because they can help coordinate and bring groups together who are thinking about using genomics in this setting. As I mentioned, there's a program uh, that's going to be, there's a, 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 a meeting that's gonna take place in Boston that was organized um, by the group in Boston, by Robert Green's group. But for sure, uh, uh, NBSTRN should definitely become involved in the sort of coordination of efforts and coordination of conferences and uh, general outreach literally literally around the world for, for these kind of efforts to examine all of the aspects of uh, newborn screening through genomics. And I, I hope that in my discussion of what Genomics England is doing in this area and what the National Health Service is doing in this area, I hope I made it clear that this is a very big project and it requires literally hundreds of individuals. I will say that the program here has probably already 40 or 50 people devoted full-time to this. There are hundreds of other people at Genomics England involved in other aspects of, of the program. And there are literally hundreds of physicians around the country involved. And so this is a very large program and that's just in England. And so uh, there, there is a huge need to coordinate and to make sure that there's lots of dialogue between groups around the world to identify really what are the best approaches because no one really knows right now. Well, Dr. Pick, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, we are here, MBSTERN is here to help amplify your work and we look forward to helping to foster the dialogue and the collaboration globally. And so we like to end our podcast interview with our signature question, and that is, what does newborn screening research mean to you? Right. I, I, I thought about this uh, even before we got on this podcast, because I know that you had asked me this. For me, newborn screening by genome sequencing is being invented right now. And it's only gonna be invented once. And so for me to be part of such an exciting movement, which is really a worldwide phenomenon, is just one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my career. And if we do this right, we can help thousands of children worldwide before they get sick and help them lead really healthy lives and get to them before they become injured by their disease. And so for me, that really is one of the most exciting things I've done in my career and gives me great satisfaction to know that I might be helping some child in some country years from now because I helped to invent and develop these genome programs for newborn screening. Dr. Pick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together 
Let's increase the impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories.